0: More importantly, we all hold on to the ways of thinking and the ways of knowing. You know, so even when knowledge is lost, the way of knowing it is still there and therefore it's recoverable. A book shouldn't just increase knowledge. A book should increase what can be known.
1: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was How can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today my guest is Tyson Yunkapoda. Tyson is a member of the Appalach clan in far North Queensland, Australia. He's a carver of traditional tools and weapons. He's also an academic, an arts critic, and a researcher. Tyson is a senior lecturer in indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. A friend recommended Tyson's book to me, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. A big part of why I was interested to talk with Tyson is because I understand he comes from a worldview that's very far outside my own, and probably yours as well. If you think about all of the challenges facing us as a society today, as a civilization, Pretty much all of those challenges have come from the thinking and the way of seeing and believing and behaving and relating that is part of our current worldview. And as is often attributed to Einstein, a problem can't be solved with the same level of thinking that created it. So if there is a solution to the big challenges we face, perhaps it will come from outside our current paradigm. Tyson's book, introduced Me To or Expanded On so many concepts that i think can be useful in this interview we talk about indigenous concepts and worldviews, including relationships time totemic relationships song lines the dreaming connection to the land we also talk about violence about punishment we talk about the worst public beating tyson ever received from a woman we talk about what you can learn from a pig we also talk about carving, writing, expression. And I love Tyson's view that a book should not just increase one's knowledge, but increase what's knowable. I believe that his book does that. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation. As we record this, Tyson is in Australia. He's at home with family. There's a little bit of background noise, but overall, I hope you're able and willing to listen past any background noise or any technological challenge that might've existed in this recording which I don't think are too many. I think we we were able to connect pretty fully and have what I think is a great conversation. But I hope you're able to listen past any background noise or any technological challenge to hear the things that Tyson has to say. I really believe that he's speaking from a knowledge and a worldview that can help you improve your own life personally, and also the quality of life for those around you. So thank you for listening to this conversation with my new friend, Tyson Yunkaporta. Tyson, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Hey, it's good to be here. Brilliant.
1: Tyson, will you tell me, please, what is life about?
0: Oh, what is life about?
1: Uh,
0: It's not really about anything. It just is. It just is. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
1: It's, um, that is a valid answer. I,
0: I mean, and I guess, I mean, what do you mean by life and all that sort of thing? That's uh, yeah. <laughs> What's it about? So as in the meaning of? See, that would go with your former name. That would be a Brian a Life of Brian thing. No, of life, that was a different, <laughs> yes. different movie, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, life is uh, life. Just is life. Can't be stopped. You know, it just is. And I guess it's. I guess it's a big networked reality that's experiencing itself and and you can't be outside of it and looking in life isn't something to be that you it's not an objectively observable reality you know you can only be in it and it is a thing that is observing itself you're part of a thing that's observing itself so you can't really stand outside of it and look at any part which is probably why we got the um blind men and the elephant sort of thing going on with everyone trying to describe it.
1: Well, and and what you're saying now about something experiencing itself, I'm reminded of a pronoun you use in your book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And you talk about us too. And I'm so interested in that. Will you tell me a little more about why that exists and how it's used? Yeah,
0: well, um, we have these networks, I guess, that that are um, integral. And you know, so, we, our social networks in our Aboriginal cultures are, are patterned on, on, on the same patterns of, of nature, I guess, would be one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is they're not separate at all. You know? So, in nature and in any complex adaptive system, no node just exists on its own, everything exists in relation to other things and to everything else. But the first point of contact there is the pair. You know the pair. You know two things connected. You know so you have. You know like uh, crayfish and ants are connected in that totem- in that uh, natural system because they both perform the same function. Just one does it under the water and one does it above the water. You know,
1: crayfish and ants perform the same function. What what's the function?
0: To deal with carrion, to keep the place clean. <laughs> but many other functions as well. You know they send out scent signals and sound signals that signal other things to go on in that system. So they're a pair, but then they're attached to other pairs. So the signals of the yabbies with their clicks, that brings in the eels, you know, and the signals of the ants giving off their scent signals and pheromones and stuff like that, that triggers other seasonal things to occur and brings in different, you know, birds, causes plants to flower, all these things go on. So there are all these different pairs. And so our human relations, they occur in the same way. So you might have a totemic relation to that ant or a totemic relation to that yabby. You know what I mean? And they're, they're in pairs, but you're in pairs as well. So all of our human relationships are built on those kinship pairs. Like, uh, And the central one is mother and child. Mother and child is the central pair that all the other pairs feed into and out of. So I guess that's the first us, you know, the first uh, order of us, if you think of it, you know, as going because there's lots of different words for us. In Aboriginal languages, and so that's that's one of them. It's us too. So you and I, you know, as we're coming into relation now, you know, we start to build our relationship over this next hour, and you know, we become like, you know, brothers, or we might start to think of each other as, you know, I might think of you as uncle or grandfather or something. and we come in, and we start to have some kind of pair happening there, relation. Yeah. So that's that. Uh, the idea in the book. I don't know. It's it, Linguists call that the dual first person plural. And as far as I know, the dual dual, dual first person, first person plural. plural. As far as I know, a, a book has never been written in the dual first person plural before until now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but there are heaps of other us's. There's also us only. So that's like us, but not them. <laughs> so, you know, just us, fellas, or... Just us fat guys, or you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, You're exclusive groups, basically. So there's an us for that, and then there's an us that's more all-encompassing, and that's everybody. So all of us.
1: But this, if I understood it correctly, the way you use this term "us," too, you could have said "I." Is that right? I mean, is it? But it, of course, it has a different meaning, but and, and function, right?
0: Yeah. Well, the way the way I've been using it is is you know in a lot of sort of situations I'm talking about in the book. From my point of view, I'm bringing the reader into that, so it's not just me standing there talking to somebody or being in that place or walking, you know, with an elder or something. It's like, no, that's us two are doing that, and we're doing that right now, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. I have so many thoughts and so many questions um, because I think at the bottom of it, right? Like, so you're the subtitle of your book, "How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World." Yeah. Massive, like massive promise, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, well, it's it's really cheeky. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but there's something, there's something there. I mean, obviously, many many things there. But maybe maybe it's useful to start with a few kind of operational definitions, like what do certain things mean, or what or how are you using them? And let me start with this one: What does it mean to yarn? Oh, to yarn.
0: Yeah, yarning. It's it, it, it's not really conversing. It's not really just telling a story, like telling a yarn. It's more than that. It's it's I don't know. It's a it's a sort of structured process that doesn't look structured you know it can be quite messy but there's a there's you know a number of people or it could be just an us two but usually it's a number of people you know and not necessarily sitting in a circle so a lot of people talk about yarning circles and you know all that sort of thing but yeah like traditionally it's sort of more you're just sort of sitting all in the space facing different angles and yeah people are, are sort of building a loose consensus about what is known about a context a situation or just in general and it's sort of from that loose consensus that you build that you that you decide you can make predictions solutions and all that sort of thing so you're trying to basically form a bit of a a group mind you know where all the stories even if they're contradictory they all sit alongside each other and all the points of view sit alongside and they're not in it's not about debating and one story coming out on top you know, it's all the stories together. And in the aggregate, there is a, an understanding then of of the knowledge and an ability to, you know, make predictions, find solutions, decide what to do next, decide what has value, you know, or even just affirm those relations, you know?
1: Yeah. No, thank you for for sharing that. And I understand that your book is the product of more than 20 years of you yarning, participating in, Conversations and relationships and learning and and experiences. And part of what I find really fascinating is, you know, I think of this saying, I believe it was Schopenhauer who said that each man takes the limits of his vision to be the limits of the world, right? So we think that what we experience, what we perceive is all there is. We tend to as human beings. But when I'm exposed to, you know, writing and thinking, such as what you've included in Sand Talk about things like us too, or things like this way of being with each other, v and f- forming a group mind and consensus, it's not debating, it's not putting people down and scoring points, right? That when I start to think about if indigenous thinking really can save the world, it's not going to be because you show us a tool we didn't have, right? But it's going to be the thinking and the way of relating and the way of seeing the world, right? So let me, let me on the topic of definitions, let me keep going on that for a moment and ask, so how do you define or how do you describe an indigenous person or indigenous knowledge? What does that even mean?
0: Oh, well, I mean, an indigenous person still, it's a tricky one, you know, because in the end, and a lot of us wouldn't want to admit this to ourselves, but we're really defining ourselves in relation to non-indigenous people, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it's it's like we've i don't know I think we've bought into the binary but basically an indigenous person is is somebody who's still still carrying who belongs to a community that is still carrying the memory of a life lived sustainably within the landscape you know that's to me that's that's my definition of indigenous yeah and to live within the landscape, well, that requires unpacking too because these aren't cultures that are unchanged for millennia and all that sort of stuff. They're always changing. And they're changing particularly because the land is always changing. So, you know, our elders tell us that if you don't move with the land, the land will move you. So you can't be settled as such, but not like aimless nomads either, you know, but you have to be in your land base. And usually your boundaries... Your traditional boundaries will be defined by a bioregion, you know, or a set of bioregions, and that they define you. And your language and culture is shaped by that landscape. So your unique language, it just is evolved to perfectly describe life in that region and all of the things, all of the entities within it. So your language evolves like that. And as the land changes, your language changes and your culture changes, etc. Yeah, so it's basically about being in a kind of symbiosis with your place. And I think if you're disconnected from that, then, you know, you become non-Indigenous. But I guess, you know, most of us now, we, we can't live precisely in that anymore. But we still, like, hold on to and retain the memories of that life. But also, more importantly, we all hold on to the ways of thinking and the ways of knowing. You know, So even when knowledge is lost, the way of knowing it is still there and therefore it's recoverable. My my publisher, when he first asked me to write the book, he said, a book shouldn't just increase knowledge. A book should increase what can be known. A book should increase what can be known. And I thought that was beautiful. I went, yep, all right. That's what I want to do.
1: (laughs) That sounds like the kind of publisher I'd like to work with as well, not just... How many copies can we sell? <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Someone with that view. That's, that's beautiful. Okay, so let me ask this. Is Aboriginal and Indigenous, are these words synonyms or are they somehow different? And if so, how?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it, I mean, it depends on what your politics are. It's one person's preferred term as someone else's offensive label. But most of us wouldn't think of ourselves as just that or even as that. You know, it's sort of how we have to define ourselves and be defined in relation to the occupying culture on on your land, you know. Because if you want to survive, you have to interact with that culture. You have to interact with, well, more its economy and its bureaucracies and its police force and all that sort of thing. And so you're kind of defined as that, you know, within that administration kind of thing. Uh, It's an administrative term more than anything. In the same way that, you know, Indians in North America will call themselves Indians, you know, <laughs> not like they don't say Native American. They, they Most of the ones i met say Indian, even though it was just, you know, sailors who showed up and they'd made a navigation error and thought they'd landed in India. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they still call themselves Indians. <laughs> it's like, it's just, ah, uh, okay, well, that's what all the laws, all the treaties, everything else was written with that word, we we'll just use it. Yeah, I guess it's the same, but most of us would just call ourselves by, you know, our family or our um, first people's group, you know, and that's usually the language and the name of the language is usually the name of, of the land and it's the name of the people as well. It's usually the same thing. Um, So you just call yourself that.
1: So my, my audio cut out there for just a moment, but if I heard you, I I think you said that often the name of the language is the name of the land
0: so the name the name of your language will also be the name of your land. will also be the name of your people. yeah it's sort of one thing. There aren't a lot of separations like a lot of things that are separated and abstracts that are separated in um sort of cultures of separation uh, they're not they're not separated in indigenous worldviews so much. There aren't as many abstract nouns, and in some languages like mine there's no no abstract nouns you
1: know. So if, okay, so there's a lot in what you just said, I think about, first of all, I heard this term I'd never heard before about a culture of separation. So will you tell me what, what do you mean by that? I don't know. I just made it up. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, it just came out of what I was saying because I was talking about, you know, the way these language. Yeah. See, if you have a language of separation, let's coin that term. you, You have a language that separates things out like nature and society. So you create names for two different things that don't exist. I mean, nature doesn't- but doesn't
1: every language do that? Ah. Isn't, I mean, isn't oh, that the function created, of language? No,
0: languages create, create words for things that exist, not things that don't exist. Nature doesn't exist. Society doesn't exist. They're, they're one thing. You know, humans and animals, this, that's not two different things. <laughs> you know, you, almost, you don't even need a word for those things because they just are. You know, you have individual words for each different kinds of animals, but there isn't a big collective noun that just says animals, you know, or a word that says nature or relationships or, you know, you don't need to describe those things because you're in them.
1: Part of part of what you say in in your book I thought was really beautiful is you say the assistance people need is not in learning about Aboriginal knowledge, but in remembering their own, right? And in an interview I listened to with you, you say we're all refugees from our own homelands from our own ways of being on this planet from everything in our dna that's screaming to live in a certain way we're refugees from that we've been displaced and dispossessed and we're not in our habitat and our proper way of being thank
0: you for hearing that yeah it's a really important message and i think a lot of people aren't getting it because i get contacted by a lot of people going oh how can i get in touch with you know uh, aboriginal people and aboriginal communities so that i can learn indigenous knowledge and all this sort of thing and it's it's yeah it's more about so i mean i mean most of our aboriginal peoples in our communities we our knowledge is fragmentary you know it's not the same as it was a century ago you know it's fragmentary but in each fragment you know there's a pattern there's the pattern of the whole you know and you can reconstruct from that and i would argue that in every human being you know if you're just separated by you know, or a thousand years instead of a couple of hundred years, you know, from that lifestyle, there are fragments there and you need to find those fragments and, and extrapolate from the pattern that you find there. Cause you know, I don't know, you know, if you're from a culture, that's like, you know, tens of thousands of years old, it's, you know, like I would look at, you know, like European cultures and say, well, it's like five minutes ago that you were, you know, on the tundra or whatever, like hunting mammoths. That was five minutes ago. Just, (laughs) you know, it's not, you're still a human being. It's still there. So for me, Indigenous is, you know, everybody's born, you know, this Indigenous being, you know, this person that hasn't been domesticated yet. And I guess that's another part of my personal definition is, you know, an Indigenous person is somebody who's, you know, trying to hold onto a pattern of not being a domesticated human being, who's still resisting that. You know and so and we all have elements of that you know in us it's yeah and you're not growing that beard for no reason at all it's you <laughs> you're holding on to something you know you're holding on to something of what it is to be a man you know a an organism in a habitat that's living a certain way i, I talked. A, a dutch woman contacted me recently and she said the same thing you know oh, how can i learn indigenous knowledge i want to meet indigenous people but i live in holland and I said, well, you have Frisians there. That's your indigenous people there in Holland. They still have their language. They still have their land. They look after their wetlands. They they have their traditional knowledge. You know, they, they've got their indigenous organizations. Just you don't have to come here. Just go there. And she said, oh, but I am Frisian. Wow. And I'm like, <laughs> I am Frisian. I went, well, you're indigenous. It's like, oh, I suppose I am, you know. And we've got, but we've got Eastern Frisians and Western Frisians and, you know, we don't get along. long. And, and they say we're not indigenous and we say they're not indigenous. And, and, but they are all bloody just, they descended from Vikings anyway. I don't know what they're talking about. And I'm like, all right. So you've got like, yeah factions fighting and everything. It's, yeah, you're definitely an indigenous community, you know? (laughs) And then she's just like, then she's sharing with me, she's showing me photos of, you know, the skates that they make out of sticks, you know? So they're still making the same traditional skates they've been making. The women have like, they have this skating tradition and, and they had like this, this festival where they skate naked, you know, when the, when the ice forms on the thing as a way of sort of like just howling their feminine, matriarchal defiance at the winter, you know, no, you're not going to take our babies or our lives. We're going to beat you, you know, and so they (laughs) skate on these skates they make out of sticks in the forest in this traditional way. And she's telling me all this tradition. I'm going, you're blacker than me. What are you, (laughs) you're asking (laughs) me for advice on how to recover your (laughs) indigeneity. It's right there, you know? And I guess everybody's got that to some extent or less. It's just, Finding it. It's there, you know. Uh, you yeah, don't need to look, look outwards to some, you don't need to mine the margins of cultures and economies. You need to mine the margins to try and find wisdom in this exotic other who's over there.
1: This, it seems to me to have such a parallel to, and, and maybe it is the same or, or similar, of spiritual seeking, where, you know, I think of something a teacher of mine. say is what you are looking for is so close there is not even room for a way it's like it's right there right or you are looking for the way home not recognizing you've never left you know and and so with this how do we then remember that and what role as you've already talked touched on this but what role does the land play how do how can we use the land to remember or reconnect.
0: Yeah, you have to be all of that that you just said comes back to the first question you asked me, you know, what is life about? I mean, because just asking that question places you outside of life. And so you're starting this big journey of seeking that that's placing you further away from your goal. (laughs) (laughs) You're in it, you're alive, you know what it is.
1: (laughs) Maybe this is why spiritual seekers take vows of silence, because they know the language just spins a web, right? But just
0: yeah, the the land it, it, it is all around you, you know, and it's it's there and it's constantly moving and you know, in the most horrendous bloody urban environments, it, you know, it's there and it's there in the the air and the sky and the you know, the waters that are moving like yeah. So I'm in Melbourne and uh, I don't know 100 years ago or something they they moved the river because they didn't like where it was. <laughs> So they moved it, they made this channel and they went, we want the river there because it fits better with the real estate sort of zonings we're trying to set up or whatever. And so they didn't, you can go and see that river, it's there. But you know what most people don't know is that the the original river is still running under the ground. You know, It's still there, that, that, that first river, it didn't go anywhere. It's still there and, um, and I guess in the same way if you're in a city, there is land under your feet. And, you know, you can listen to it. You can look at what there are usually birds. Every city you go into, there's there's lots of life. And I guess it's it's paying attention to it, but not in reductive ways, like looking for the pairs of things, looking for what connects, looking for the signals that are being given, but also the sea, the signs like of seasonal change and things like that. So that you notice that, you know, so... I don't know. There's a lot of tea trees planted uh, in Melbourne. And so I know that when uh, the tea trees are flowering, then I can get lychees and cherries at the supermarket. (laughs) Because that's that season coming up for Christmas, you know, you like, I don't know. So you see those seasonal indicators that might've, you know, they indicate other things, you know, traditionally a certain kind of fish would be fat in the river and ready to catch when you see those flowers. But I don't know, you look for other things and I guess you just you just connect and you receive those signals from the land and you let them shape you, and let them move you for the different routes that you take when you're walking around or even driving, the um, decisions you make, the thousand forks in the road that you make during the day, you start to allow the messages from the land to come through you in those decisions, then you, you're
1: starting to come into that pattern, you know, that patterning and it starts to change you. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful and And, you know, I suspect many people listening to this will be like me, where that's not something I thought there was a point in my life before which I'd never even thought of that about to attempt to receive signals from the land, let alone let them direct me or shape me Mm -hmm. in some way like it was a possibility.
0: And it's not an ethereal sort of spirit woo-woo thing either. It's, It's quite concrete. You know, you're looking for seasonal indicators and things like that yeah sorry keep keep going
1: I, yeah it's really beautiful, and you know I'm reminded in here where where I live in the Rocky Mountains, of course, we're relatively new introduction you know the the white pioneers came to the valley where I am now one hundred and fifty years ago, two hundred years ago, maybe, and I know that there were indigenous people here at least ten thousand years ago, you know at, at least, but there's not a lot that's a visible reminder. Of their presence, which is not surprising. But it reminds me of some of what you write in the book about the fact that cities, right? I think these two things about we live in an economic system that expects unlimited growth in perpetuity based on finite (laughs) material, which is clearly not a sustainable (laughs) equation, combined with the fact that cities. And I'd never put this together about the defining feature of civilization is city building, right? And that cities out by necessity outsource the consumption of materials beyond themselves to the point where, when those two realities intersect combined with, by the way, what you said about violence, that life is violent. And if your day-to-day experience isn't participating somehow in violence firsthand, you've just outsourced your violence. I thought that was really interesting. So I, Where am I going with this? It was just about receiving signals from the land, remembering what we have forgotten or maybe never knew as we grew up, but recognizing, seeing the bigger picture where we decide to move rivers. I was like, oh, that river would be better here for the real estate value, but not seeing the system or the pattern of which it's a bigger part. And I know from my experience personally and as a coach that we tend to change when the pain is bad enough right? As individuals or as societies, but sometimes I think the destruction could be so severe, it's too late, right? So how do we, how do we change before it's too late? Yeah. Well, I
0: mean, sometimes the pain, like, as you would know, in your coaching experience, you know, it creates a feedback loop that ends up being self-perpetuating as well, because people will, will do these, you know, damaging short-term things just to try and relieve the pain. You know, yeah, which actually, right, yeah, which actually makes things worse. You know, it just means that the pains will go greater in the long term. You know, and I guess we're kind of in a, in a number of those feedback loops now. I don't know. We've the global economy has limped along for the last ten. I mean, it 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 died ten years ago. You know, and yeah, um, flatlined for a yeah. bit. <laughs> and that, I don't know, like a uh, um, some countries, some communities, and then certain levels sectors. Classes, etc., in those communities managed to outsource that pain temporarily to to other people who are <laughs> and other places. You know, so half the world's burned over the last ten years, and and there's little bubbles. You know, in in certain countries that are, are just almost unaware of it. You know, and then you've got the quantitative easing that that's been going on with just printing, printing, printing money and just artificially inflating this this Ponzi scheme. <laughs> again, you know, yeah. Look, stock markets are healthy. It's all good. The economy's fine. and Just the world's on fire. Oh my God. I literally in, you know, a lot of times Greenland was burning at the same time as Australia was uh, recently, you know? Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people retreat from pain and, and I guess, um, you know, more big sort of nations where people have been trained from birth to, you know, for uniformity in thought, word and deed, you know, you get everybody in lockstep thinking the same way. And yeah, they all retreat from the pain. And, you know, if you're privileged enough to be in one of these technocratic bubbles that, you know, doesn't have to experience any violence or pain, then you, yeah, you can go along and just keep kicking the can down the road and pretending that it's it's all fine. But I guess (laughs) eventually that violence is going to come home to you as I guess you're, you're finding over there now, you can outsource it only for so long.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or deny you <laughs> yeah. Know, the basis of the unrest or the inequality. Yeah. It's, it's insane, isn't it? Well, let me, speaking of violence, let me just shift. We've known each other now like 20 minutes, <laughs> 25 minutes. Let me ask you about a story. You don't actually tell a whole story, but you mentioned this that the, the worst public beating you ever received in which you from a woman (laughs) three broken ribs a knife through your hand hair pulled out what was that like what was that about i love the things that you're
0: picking up on from this book i just i love the things that you're finding it's just you know that they're all the bits that i really love in the book and no (laughs) one ever asked me about (laughs) yeah no one's ever asked me about that and i thought
1: how could they not ask you about getting stabbed through the hand? I
0: know. I, I think they're just a bit <laughs> embarrassed for me. You know, oh, what? You got beaten up by a girl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's a reason I didn't start with it,
0: but I, I definitely want to know about it. It was uh, an indigenous woman, a Torres Strait Islander woman. And she would have weighed like, oh, I'm trying to do conversions for Americans here. But like, you know, it been easy. A couple hundred pounds. She was a big lady. And um <laughs> Yeah, I guess she just had a rough night and um yeah, she just randomly decided that I was it and yeah, and she just we were, I was in I was in a, a a cafe and she just walked over to the counter and picked up a cash register and threw it at my head and that's how it started. Then she walked over to the cutlery and grabbed a steak knife and went me with that and and it was on and I was just in awe of her, like, wow, because she moved so fast. Just amazing, and I'm just like I'm. I'm not gonna like hold back. here. <laughs> yeah. I don't care who's watching. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best here. I'm gonna try and take her out, like you know. And I and I really went for it. And no, but she flogged me. <laughs> <laughs> she just absolutely cleaned the floor with me. You know, and that's not the only time. I've 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 been yeah flogged by by women before. I've got um I, I know like a lot of women who are half my size who clean me up. I don't know. And that was uh, back in the day. And I was a pretty good fighter um, back then. I was fairly good. I, like, I won most of them fights and, some, and often with people who are heaps bigger than me. But yeah, not her. She, she, she finished me. <laughs> it was, That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. She was amazing. And like, I don't know, but it was just, it was just the way that it was framed by the bystanders that got to me, you know, it was just cause I was obviously wounded Quite severely, and (laughs) and but they were just so disgusted that that a man was beaten by a woman that (laughs) you know it's like no you're just going to have to take your medicine son sort yourself out we're not (laughs) helping you
1: (laughs) well you know a couple things that stand out to me when I when I learned about that and and some of the other things I've I've read that you've written are one is about I don't I don't even want to say the equality but maybe the, the coexistence of men and women in traditional cultures, like indigenous cultures, as opposed to maybe the hierarchical, you know, the patriarchy, you know, something. But there's a there's a way in which, like getting beat up by a woman, as I hear you tell it, it's like, that's not actually all that surprising because there is at some fundamental level this, again, I don't wanna use the word equality, but there's clearly a strength and, you know, an ability inside, The feminine that I think we sometimes don't recognize or actively deny in a Western culture. Yeah.
0: Well, there's, I, I just think, I think Western feminine, not just Western femininity, but civilized femininity, domesticated femininity. And so I would include Middle East, Asia, everywhere where you've got these civilizations, women are constrained, they're bound, they're taught from birth to take up less space than men, which is why they throw like that. You know what I mean? That's not. Women aren't supposed to be these mincing, limp-wristed things, you know, getting rid. Of. They're not, they're, that's not what a woman is or has ever been. And so, you know, in our communities, the the further away, like the more the, the Aboriginal communities in Australia and probably in the United States as well and everywhere else that have managed to resist domestication to some extent, you see that women, women that femininity is a very different thing. And... It comes down to violence. And this is the most uncomfortable thing in the book that people struggle with is that there is an agency in violence, not the act of violence, but in just competence with violence. Do you have access to the tools and skills of violence, which as an animal, you should, you know, you should have your basic tooth and claw skill. surely, (laughs) you know, that's just in you. And I think, yeah, I think that that domestication just beats it out of women, you know, right the way through. And to me, that's the most horrendous act of violence. So I see all these women walking around with this dolly sort of femininity. And I'm, it's just, you know, it makes me sick, especially because we project that out into the world then. as so oh, that's what's female. You know, that's not female. That's what happens to anybody that you that you lock up in a cage and bloody restrict and confine and restrain and terrorize over you know a uh, hundred generations until they're just like <laughs> you know that's not what feminine is anyway look i I get in a lot of trouble for saying things like that I've, i'm I'm quite a i don't know that it's it, I've got quite a reputation as a misogynist in some circles for saying those things yeah. But just my, my, my experience of women uh, is that women are, are formidable. You know, my cultural experience of women is it formidable. You know, like I, I have a niece who is like the best fighter in the family and, and not just in the family, but, you know, one of the best fighters in the whole community. And, you know, she's famous for being able to like, you know, if someone harms a woman in the family. She's rounded the house straight away on her own. And she's calling out, I want your six best men. I want your six best men, your bastards, bring them out. And every time, like she'll she'll beat up every single one of those six men, big men, she'll just lay them out one by one. You know, and um, I don't know, that's, I mean, but that's extreme. You know, most of the women, you know, that they're, they're not fighting all the time, you know, but they bloody can if they have to. And the same thing as most men, you know, be fighting all the time, but you bloody can if you have to. And I think anybody who's, and you could go your whole life and never have a fight, but you do have to be somebody who has the agency, access to that that agency of violence. And if you don't have it, if it's been taken away from you and concentrated into the hands of a, a selected group, whether that's by gender or whether it's by, oh, it's just the police force. No one else is allowed to do violence. You know, if bloody, you know, one of these people over here breaks a window or you know, there's anything like that. That's an act of violence. They got to go to jail. But these fellows over here, they can shoot him. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you get these concentrated violence in, in this, the hands of a privileged few. You've got problems, you know, that that's not good. Okay. Uh, and yeah, you've got problems of, you know, of course, uh, coming out of those imbalances, but also it's bad for your system because any complex dynamic system, Something like like violence has to be distributed evenly throughout that system. Violence is a part of it. And when it's distributed, it does very little damage, very little damage. So like traditional warfare for us did very little damage. There were always checks and balances, you know, things like, you know, if you hurt somebody in the battle, you were then obligated to care for them and to feed them until they got better. So, yeah, and that, and that's hard work. So you know, you you don't want to hurt him too bad, you know. Yeah, or that knife fighting way that I was talking about, where at the end of the knife fight, like the winner would have to get it cut up the same way as the loser. Yeah,
1: you fight differently. You with do the awareness. If you realize that every
0: time you cut him, you're just cutting yourself, I tell you, that'll resolve a dispute really quick because it forces you to see the other side's point of view, and and that's kind of the point of violence. It's not to dominate.
1: Now, that's such an, it's such an interesting point. And I, I, as, as this conversation unfolds, I can definitely hear how this could be pleasant or people could, you know, take a, an extreme reaction, you know, to it. And I think there's so much here that's beyond what is the, the end result, the visible result. Right. But again, what you're saying, and, and that was the other thing I wanted to, to raise from this things that you say in the book is in our traditional systems of law, we remember everyone is an idiot from time to time punishment is harsh and swift but afterward there is no criminal record no grudge against the transgressor perpetrators are only criminals until they are punished and then they may be respected again and begin afresh to make a positive contribution to the group in this way people will not lie and shift blame or avoid punishment by twisting rules to escape accountability they can look forward to a clean slate and therefore be willing and equal participants in their own punishment and transformation which is a learning process more than anything else. And for somebody who lives in a culture that has the highest incarceration rate per capita of any nation on the planet, and who labels you know, offenders for life, you're a felon, you can't get a job, you can't own a firearm, this kind of thing. I think about how different it might be if we treated the punishment of a crime in this way. And again, I come back to that thing about if indigenous thinking can save if it really can save the world, it's not because of a tool or even any one process, but instead an entire worldview. But I go back to a question, I'm not sure. Uh, so the question is, but how do we remember, how do we arrive at, or how do we remember that way of seeing the world?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, but that's in the chapter where I'm talking about rocks and, and what, you, what you can learn from rocks. And so I guess in that one, I'm kind of trying to redirect people to... Um, understanding the law of the land because the law is in the land, you know, and it's in those stories that are there. Yeah. And I I guess, I mean, everything comes back to the land and understanding the land and being with the land and moving with it, seeing how things are done there and trying not to project your Darwinian models onto what you're seeing (laughs) would really help because, you know, I see it all the time with, you know, like people like Joe Rogan and people like that when they're talking about nature and, they're seeing cruelty and you know dom- dominance and apex this and you know <laughs> savage that and yeah and I guess if that's the lens that you're looking at that through then that's what you're going to see but this yeah there's so much more than that and I, I suppose your your understanding of violence and the way it's distributed through a system you know you're understanding that that yes you're going to have to kill this stingray now for lunch. But you could just as easily, while you're doing that, while you're wading in that water up to your armpits to spear that stingray, you could just as easily become dinner for a tiger shark. You know, yeah, these things, these things happen. I don't know. So yeah, the, I mean, the idea of punishment being—it it just has to be over. It has to be finished. Once the punishment happens, it's got to be done. And so the punishment's got to be right. And I don't I think locking someone up like in a cage is is really going to do it. Like yeah, 20 years in a small room with a PlayStation and a, I don't know, TV or whatever, I don't think that's satisfying for anyone, you know. But if it's, we're going to have to break your shoulder now. You you imagine a broken shoulder. It's like, yeah, we're going to have to break your shoulder. That's It's going to be really hard for you for like the best part of a year. (laughs) And you'll have a good think about that. Yeah. But then the idea that it's, I guess it's this ordeal thing, you know, the ordeal is, is a big part of all human cultures, you know. But the idea of going through an ordeal of a punishment, they kind of, I don't know, it, it transforms the wrongdoer, it transforms the person that's been wronged, but it also kind of transforms the community that's witnessing it, you know. So if you, you, you look back to medieval Europe and you look at the ordeals that people go through when they're being, they had to get a, a punishment, like even if they were being pretty much tortured to death publicly, for something they'd done. It was really highly ritualized. And I've read the, I've read the, the accounts of these and that they'd have songs and the community would be singing the song and they were really kind of everybody had a part in it. But the victim also did, like the one who was being punished. So while they're having their entrails drawn out or something, they're joining in for their part of the song. You know, the, the community would chant one part and they would chant the other bit back. So, they're kind of like this willing participant in this ordeal to expunge the crime and transform themselves, you know, and die a good death and actually transform the rest of the community as well. Yeah. So, people talk a lot about forgiveness and all that sort of thing, but we, we just say, um, we just say, finish. We just say, finish when it's done. Kanna, finish. So, I'd say, Kanna, enough. Yeah. And it's, it's, when it's when it's done. But if it's not done yet, I, I need to get that out, you know. Like I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to do something to that person and I need to get it out of my because you have this um, your big spirit is in your belly you know and you have to keep it clear if you let bad energy build up there it'll make you sick and you have to get it out so and you might do that with yelling or swearing or throwing something or you know hitting that person or beating them or you know fighting and you need to keep doing it until that's gone that's done and then that person, if they've changed and you've changed, you know, the wrongdoer and the person who's been wronged, they've both had a chance to sort that out, then it's done. It's finished. And people don't talk about, oh, you remember that time when that bastard did that, you know? People don't gossip about that anymore. That's finished and it's gone from the memory. Yeah. And see, this is this is what, I mean, do, I mean you know, a state can't deliver the kind of justice that you and I are talking about now. A state can't do that. A centralised authority can't do that. It needs to be in a community of people. It needs to be, you know, something that a community does for itself.
1: Yeah. That's something I've learned about just in the last few years here in the United States, you know, we call restorative justice. And and a friend, it was actually, I hadn't put this together, but it was the same friend who recommended your book to me is the one who recommended that, you know, who introduced me to this concept of restorative justice. And prior to that, it was not a concept I'd ever heard of about exactly what you're saying that, you know, the, the victim, the perpetrator and the community come together in conversation to establish, you know, the answer to these three things, what crime was committed or what rule was broken, who was injured, recognizing the perpetrator is also among the injured. And then what is the, what is the restitution or it needs to be made? What needs to be healed? And that in conversation that's, and it's not just one person extracting revenge and it's not the state saying let me open the rule book <laughs> and here's the punishment it's the wergild guild like the vikings used to do i haven't heard of that yeah, that the, term
0: yeah they had this Guild or Guild. they had to pay it was weird cuz it it's like it, it's not murder in viking lore if you tell the first person you see oh, i just uh i just hit that guy with my axe and he's dead uh i just thought i had to tell you <laughs> It's not murder if you tell the, but if you walk past someone you don't tell them, then it's murder, and then, and then you have to you have to be killed. But if you tell someone it's all right, and then at the next thing, because they'd have these things, these big community meetings, and they'd have the law speaker at the thing, and they decide like how much wergild you had to pay to the family of oh, that guy that you killed, like, you know, so how much, you know, money are they missing out on now because he's not there? It's like, well, you're going to have to pay them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, we've talked a lot about the difference. I don't even like to say difference because there's a comparative element, right? But I suppose it is, is different way of viewing the world. So if I say my understanding is that many indigenous cultures have a very different view of time from the Western concept of linear, a linear process. And in your book, you talk about a traditional language, place and time are actually the same thing. Do I understand that accurately? Will you talk about that? Yeah. Well,
0: it's, there's no separate word for those two things.
1: How do you, like, how do you function? It's one of those
0: linguistic disconnections I was talking about before. As soon as you split something from itself and give it two different names, it's like if I, you know, if I decided right from now on, I'm going to call your top half brilliant and your bottom half Brian, you know, and everybody called you that. And they, but they would address your bottom half like as a separate thing from you. How many years, how long would it be before you actually started to feel a real disconnection between the two halves of your body and they actually did become two different things? It would be horrific. <laughs> you know, you, you would. In the end, it would probably kill you. You'd probably die. It would be like a curse. And this is the same thing. You know, you separate society and nature. All these things you invent new words to divide things that shouldn't be divided. But, yeah, so in our languages, most of them' it's, there's no separate time for time and place, uh, no separate word for time and place they 're the same thing. Einstein got close, I guess with time, space, and all that yeah
1: to, to returning to the wisdom that yeah, was yeah, already yeah. present yeah.
0: Keep, <laughs> right? keep going, you're on the right track. a few more Einsteins and you <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's so interesting <laughs> yeah. And and then and then, speaking of time, you know something you you talk about that I found just fascinating. it was about. The renaming, re-identification, I'm not sure how you think of it, but with three generations and the fourth generation being basically calling that fourth generation now the parents again, is that right? How does this work?
0: So in a lot of our cultures here, like we don't have, you know, great grandparents because they, (laughs) so your great grandchildren become your parents or uncles and aunties. If that makes any sense,
1: yeah. Because relations—they were already complicated for me.
0: <laughs> Think about <laughs> yeah. your great grandmother. Imagine calling
1: calling her um, girl, like um, daughter or niece. So my great grandmother, I would call—I would actually refer to her as my my daughter or my niece. That's interesting.
0: <laughs> so it's you know
1: yeah every three generations
0: it just goes it sort of goes back to the back to the the middle in your naming system in the in the kinship system. Which is kind of nice because it kind of demands a bit of intergenerational equity. You know, there's like, you're not going to, um, you know, destroy a water hole in a hurry, are you, if, you know, you're <laughs> going to be answering to your great grandchildren, they're going to be like parents to you. you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. See, and what's, what's interesting to me is I, I, I believe I've lived long enough to know that that's all there's already something in remarkable if you know if only interesting oh it's interesting they do that but but what i know is that if that's my lived experience that if that's how like for me that just as real as my brother is my brother if my great grandmother is my daughter if i'm living that way then yes what you're saying is true how i treat how I steward, you know, I don't, I don't even think I would refer to things as resources anymore, right? Where that's one of the things. Oh, it's a, na- it's a forest, it's a natural resource. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a living system, right? I think that would profoundly change the way that we interact with the land and with each other. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And, and I mean, so it, it just changes everything, it changes the physics of your reality. And so, you know, therefore, you know, t- time is different. You know, so we have, we have the arrow of time in modern physics, the whole, you know, based on entropy, the idea that in a closed system, you know, entropy happens over time. In a closed system, things break down over time and inevitably just decline and die and fall apart. And that's how time is measured. But do we live in a closed system? Or do we live in vast, interconnected, self-organizing, complex, overlapping, adaptive systems? that are constantly changing, exchanging energy and matter and spirit and um, everything, you know. Um, yeah, we live in those. So, I mean, it, it, it's not a big leap to start to appreciate the, the interconnected dynamic systems that you live in and start to experience those. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and in those things, you know, then you've got your, um, sec- your first law of thermodynamics, which is different. And it, it says that, you know, energy is not created or destroyed in those big systems yeah and that's it but even charles darwin even suggested that as a a better model for time they they didn't go with that though they went
1: with the whole you know survival of the fittest individuals and racist thing instead (laughs) (laughs) well and it's easier to measure how productive any individual factory worker is when you're measuring against a clock time. Yeah, that's, <laughs> right? it.
0: that's it. Well, that that, you know, that that clock, that was the clock tower that was put up in the, the middle of every town. Always these uh, technologies arrive and they allow the powerful to control something. But then there's always this moment where they appear to be giving this technology to the people, like the internet or anything else. And those the town clock was, was one of those moments in history we're going to look, look, we're making this gift of time available to everybody in the the village, you know, everybody in the town will be able to see what time it is. But then that's when wage slavery was invented, you know, they were able to, you know, uniformly lock everyone into these schedules of of measured amounts of time that they would so that workers began selling their time rather than selling the things they made. You know, so it was not no longer about a craft that you're proud of and you're producing things of value, you know, and that those items of value had a value in the community and in the economy. It was like, no, 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 you're not selling the things you make, you're selling your time making them. So, you know, you're not going to stuff around and get every nail right in the shoe that you're making, are you? If it doesn't matter, you're just going to get paid anyway. So, you know. But that's good. That's good. Cause, but that serves the people who are running the shoe factory because then you uh, people need to buy another pair of shoes in six months instead of having their pair of boots that last them their whole life.
1: Yeah, that they would repair when they... So, yeah, they you, you
0: look at these. I'm always suspicious when people want to share technology with me for free. <laughs> you know, I don't know about this Zoom. Zoom is free. I don't know. I just know that you know, if, if you're getting something for free, then you are probably the product
1: yeah that's that's for sure that's for sure yeah <laughs> well let me ask you okay so I think this is my last question in this part of the interview which is about do you refer to it as the dreaming or dreaming
0: yeah well, it's it's different for everybody so you know if you're from the central desert you'd call it Chukurpa, and it's untranslatable you know, somebody misla mistranslated it once as 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 dreaming or dream but that's not what it means <laughs> so there was a mistranslation and then, uh, I don't know, then they added this long, long time ago thing that was didn't belong to us either. So then there's this idea that it was a dream time, like this creation time a long time ago, which put us on this timeline didn't exist anyway because the dreaming is past, present, and future. It's all one thing. You know, It's everything known, everything in creation, everything that's known that ever was or ever will be. And kind of in these two... In the halves, so you've got the sky camp and the earth camp, and so the sky camp is a world of spirit, and then the you know, your earth camp is the tangible world that you live in, yeah. And yeah, the dreaming is a dynamic, it's a dynamic interaction between those two worlds, and there's different ways that you know uh, people work with that, or story that, or ritualize you know, different things to, uh, to make interactions happen between the earth camp and sky camp, but it's a constant thing. So it gets back to what we were talking about before, walking around and being in tune with the landscape and receiving messages and signals from the landscape. And that could be just seasonal signals. But it could also be um, a message from a bird, like a bird that behaves really strangely. It comes really close to you and does a little dance or something there that you've never seen that kind of bird do that before. And so you've got to stop and listen because that's a message to you. That's from the ancestors. That's from dreaming. That's That's the universe talking to you and you need to be able to interpret those signals you know you see something strange like two snakes going side by side past or you know anything like a, a sudden change in wind direction you know it just might make you pause for a minute and go oh what was i thinking about what am i supposed to be doing right now you know even as simple as that you know you're constantly receiving signals through that dreaming you know from the land around you, and, you know different signs signals that are happening lightning strikes anything could be anything could be even just the coincidences that happen in your life you know that's all part of the dreaming you know but the dreaming it's also a body of law law and it's also a body of law lore, l-o-r-e so all stories and in those stories are maps of the landscape, as well and in those stories are all your rules for how to live all your big lessons all those And they're mapped into the landscape, but then they're mapped also into the sky, into the night sky and the stars. And they reflect each other, you know, as above, so below and all that sort of thing. That's a really simple way of describing it. What
1: is dreaming? Interesting. So, Tyson, what what I'm hearing you say about the dreaming is I'm hearing you describe it as both a place and a time. If it's past, present, future, it's earth camp, it's sky camp. So maybe back to that idea we just discussed about time and place are really one anyway. But I was intrigued in the book where you talk about old man Juma told you everything in creation has dreaming, even windshield wipers and cell phones. So talk about that. Is this like an inherent intelligence in everything or is this somehow different, what he was talking about?
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of like it's that spirit, but it's also that purpose in spirit. It's the pattern, that, that creation, energy, spirit, all of these things. But but more, even, you know, the concept of Dharma. Yeah. It's that as well. Yeah. But also, uh, it's a totemic relation. So, you know, I might say, I would say my, my, my dreaming is, you know, is this this animal? Is you know this bird and this place, uh, you know. But that that's sort of all one thing.
1: Yeah. What do you mean by totemic relation? What what does that mean? So you you have a a
0: particular place that you're you're connected to, and it's something you inherit. Uh, if you're in a matrilineal group, then then it's you inherit it from your mother. If you're in patrilineal, you inherit it from your father, father side. I get mine from father's side, so it's a place, you know. You know, for me and my family, that's a place called Moving Stone, and it's a place where there's. It's called Moving Stone because there's a there's a big rock there, and every time you go there, the rocks in a different place. Well,
1: wow. that's like uh, like the uh a Death Valley. You know, in Death Valley, that, oh, that rocks that move. That move. Yeah, yeah, I've seen photos. Yeah, and of that. people for years yeah. and years were like, "What? What is happening? How is this happening?"
0: <laughs> but so you know, so everything in that place and connected to that is would be you might call my dreaming so you know uh but that stone was brought that came from china you know forever ago it came from china a long time ago on a whirlwind like a big cyclone so whirlwinds are what i call pull for me you know that's the totemic relation so whirlwinds and taipan snake and that uh, rainbow snake rainbow lightning because that's in that place as well lightning is a big part of that story for that place. Lots of things associated with that, even body parts. So my totemic body parts uh, relation for that is like is is feet, feet and knees, legs like that. So that's a totemic relation, and hands, but also substance. So our blood and urine are also. So urine is one of my big totems.
1: <laughs> it's a hard thing for people to. How, and how do you know? How do you know that? Well, because that's, that's just what we
0: have. So, you know, uh, my dad, me, my sons, daughters, we all have that same dreaming, you know, from that place. And urine, urine is, a, is a big, you know, so we won't even, so i just, so we'll just say pulwayaka if we're going to go and take a piss, you know. But pulway is, is that totem. So, you know, I go for totem. But my feet are that totem too in that relation. So pulwayaka could also mean I'm going for a walk you know, but it's all context to it. And this is, you know, you're, you're, you're digging deep. It's, um, it's, it's really hard to explain, but often like, you know, uh, so, but it's linked in. So another, to, uh, another totemic relation there is a the mud shell and that's shaped like a kidney and you actually eat that and it cleans your blood and your, your, your bladder and kidneys is shaped like a kidney you know, and cleans your urine. So it's all, that's all connected that way. That's another pair. Is that urine? Urine, which is like ochum, and the mud shell which is ochingen, and you know, so they're connected. So blood and urine are, are totemic for me, and I don't know. I often say so, because people are like, you know, always like, ah, oh, my spirit animal is the you know, the, the mighty eagle or the whale or the dolphin or something like that. You know, what's your what's your totem? I say, ah, it's piss, <laughs> <laughs> and they can't get their head around it, you know, because I guess. Here yeah, and that a long way around saying everything is dreaming has dreaming, you know everything has a class in that classification system, everything has a totemic relation, you know every substance, everything, and they come into that relation and you know and people are responsible for it, and some people have to be responsible for piss and I guess that's me eh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as exciting as having a big brother bear or something, but <laughs>
1: It'll have to do. All right. Well, thank you for for sharing that with me. I'm learning so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before we transition, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be good to talk about, or would or would benefit the listener? I know we've covered a lot. Yeah. Is there I, anything I'm, before I'm we just, transition? I'm
0: really happy to be guided uh, by you, and that because that's that's y- you you know your listeners. And I guess well, okay, that's something to talk about. Is just leadership and you know, authority and how that works in our society. And it's, it's kind of like that dynamic subordination that the person who knows the context, that's the person who decides. Do you know what I mean? But they don't, they don't hold that leadership position for any longer than that, that activity or that, that context. So, you know, in, in this situation, you know, you know your listeners. So I, I would take, I would submit to your guidance there. And your leadership in that. So, yeah, follow your... um...
1: All right. Well, then we'll transition to the lightning, the enlightening lightning round. Again, a series of 10 questions designed for me to ask briefly and for the most part to step aside and let you answer. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. So, there's no right or wrong way here. Okay. This first one. So, question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a...
0: Life is just like life. Just like life.
1: <laughs> we'll go with that. All right. Question, question number two, the famous investor and tech magnate, Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Uh,
0: the violence issue, the need for violence to be distributed throughout a system. People struggle with that.
1: Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? Fuck the police. <laughs> you own that shirt, don't you? <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> no, no. Okay, no, that just jumped out of me. We can do another one if you like. If you want to edit that out, that's okay. Yeah. If you want to do another one, no, it's fine. <laughs> okay. People understand jokes
1: I hope. On that topic, by the way, something I didn't know until I started learning from you was that you have never, you there in Australia, have never ceded your land. No. I never knew that. Yeah. So, That's amazing. Yeah. So we have no treaty. I'll bet that creates all kinds of issues. Well,
0: it, it does because Australia is an illegal colony. It's by international law, even of the day and today, um, by all international law for all time, this is an illegal colony.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I have. I actually have ancestors. Not I, Ancestors might not be the right words, but I've been to Tasmania when I was eight. I have relatives that live there. I think even still. So I was like, interesting. So I, I, I'm part of that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> somehow. They're
0: all illegal immigrants.
1: <laughs> all right. We're,
0: we'll keep going. You know, we're going to get around to building that wall at some stage. <laughs> yeah. Original Australia. We were working on it, but it was just, you know, just having too much fun then.
1: Yeah. Okay. Question number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Oh, Biopiracy by Vandana Shiva. Wow. I've never heard of that book. Why that book? It just it, it, it shows the way IPRs, intellectual property rights, have been used to, um, for the greatest heist of all time, like basically uh, stealing indigenous knowledge, you know, particularly from the women in India. To create these, you know, our big monocultures, you know, Monsanto, all that sort of thing. But it's it's just a really bloody good book, and she's she's amazing. Yeah, if anybody ever wants to uh, just read any of her blogs or anything she's ever written, she's she, she's great. Wonder know, she was one of my favorites.
1: Yeah, right on. Okay, thank you. Question number five. So I understand that you've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Just as little as possible.
0: To not carry anything with you when you travel, like the absolute minimum,
1: that, 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 makes it, yeah, that makes it easier. I don't like luggage. Yeah. Even the word lug, you got to lug it. <laughs> right. Okay. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not living. I'm not currently living or
0: uh, aging very well. <laughs> I had uh, still alive. Yeah, I, I, I had, I had about a, I had a, about a decade and a half where I completely cut out sugar and carbohydrate and I was very healthy at that time. But you know, it's, it's hard to maintain that, uh, just with how,
1: how much meat costs and that- I always reflect on how readily available it is, how long it lasts, how cheap it is and how delicious it is. And it's like, no wonder we have a global epidemic of obesity and cardiac disease. And yeah, my body's fallen apart since I've had to, uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I basically had to start eating starch again because just as an economic
1: (laughs) thing. Yeah. Okay. Question number seven. And I will mention in the introduction, by the way, so the listener will hear that you're in Australia. So I'm asking this question and the listener will hear it knowing that what's one thing. So question number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: Uh, I, okay. The, the the name of the the land, the first first peoples and then the land and the language of, of where they are. Because the, then that's your first word. You're, if you're saying that word, then you're naming the place, and then you're coming into the place. You know, you're know, you saying the language of the land there, and that's your first step coming into place. It's, it's acknowledging that First Peoples in the language of the land.
1: Okay. Awesome. Thank you. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Uh, she's always right. <laughs> happy wife, happy life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, but see, that doesn't work either. Cause yeah, you've just got to be in them. I guess um, you can make all these resolutions. I'm doing it all the time. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to join in. I'm not going to buy it. And, but no, it's yeah. That doesn't work either. Cause it's kind of like, I don't know. That's disempowering the other person as well. Cause you're not really hearing them properly. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just really hearing. Even if you don't want to,
1: yeah, especially when you don't want to. Thank you. Okay. And question number nine is about money. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? Just to avoid debt. I think in nearly a hundred interviews, no one has said that. Really? And that's so, yeah, that's so deep. Like it's so basic, but so deep, right? Yeah, that's it. It's, um, yeah, I don't have
0: a credit card or anything like that, you just don't, don't, don't do debt. That's insane. It's absolutely insane.
1: Yeah, it is. I do think it is a form of slavery.
0: Yeah, it is. Right.
1: Yeah. So that's the lightning round. Aside from the final question here in this round is if people want to learn more from you or if they want to connect with you, this assumes you want them to, <laughs> but if they, if they want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
0: Uh, I, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn. And, and I try to answer all those
1: as much as I can. And of course, they can buy Sand Talk.
0: Yeah, that that that's it. And but yeah, it's LinkedIn. I'm really accessible there. You
1: just just connect and start talking. Yeah, awesome. You know, I'm reminded that I didn't ask this. Why did you name the book Santok? I didn't name it though.
0: <laughs> I, I think it, it was a toss-up between us two, and Santalk is what they were looking at. Like I just found as a writer that every, every time, everything I've ever done. Whoever's publishing it wants to call it something else anyway. So
1: was was us to your working title, or did you have another title?
0: No, I had another title, I, I would, but it was just too inaccessible and you know, weird. What was it? Uh, the, one of the chapters is called Forever Limited, and I thought usually with these books they usually name the book after one of the chapters, so I just picked that one. So yeah, I was going to call it Forever Ltd. Oh
1: yes, I don't. Know, it's
0: an inaccessible message
1: to put on the front of a book. Okay, thank you for that. All right, the other thing that I want to just say here to make sure I let you know is as a show of gratitude to you for making time to connect with me and share your experience and, and your your knowledge and your wisdom with with me and with everybody listening. I have gone online and I've made a micro loan to an entrepreneur in the Congo. I thought of what you talked about with rare earth minerals yeah. in our phones and things. And I knew that the Congo is where a lot of that comes from. So I made a loan to this woman whose name is Miss Floride. And there's a picture of her just, I know people listening won't hear it, but here, here she is. And it turns out she will use this money to buy tomatoes and sugar and soap, which she will then sell. She's 44 years old. She has 12 children and her husband doesn't work. So in some small way, I like to think that this has uh, benefited somebody somewhere beyond even those who hear our voices.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. (laughs) Well, Thank you.
1: Okay. And the final, the final part here of the interview, and just a a few questions is about writing and the creative process. And I don't have a lot in mind. In fact, the only thing that I really wanted to ask specifically is, is about the fact that you say your word for cutting, carving, and making is also the word now that's used for writing, right? And of course, as you tell in the book, a lot of what you did was carving, in, you made shields and boomerangs and other things, right? Will you talk about what was your process to write this book and how did carving factor in and why?
0: Yeah, well, that was, uh, it was just a way of preserving my, my thinking because literacy is something that really radically rewires your brain. Uh, if you look at the neuroscience around that, yeah, literacy is very um, inefficient and, and it, make, it makes you brave, be, your brain behave quite abnormally. And I just wanted to try and somehow ah, just do the knowledge in a traditional way because you do put your knowledge and your story and things onto and into objects you know, that you make, carved objects or woven objects or painted, things like this. You, know, you transfer knowledge that way, store knowledge that way. And so I wanted to do that first and then just have a go at trying to translate as much of that as I could into English print. Well, I thought the, the outcome of that would be quite interesting if I tried to maintain the integrity of the knowledge that was within the object. So I had all the yarns, you know, over 20 years, as you said, but, and then, but then I tried to make about 13 different objects and put all of that knowledge into those. Wow. What were, the, what were some of them? How did you choose what, what to make? Well, that's just it. I mean, it came out of, I guess it came out of the yarns. And some of them were things that I just happened to be making. So while I was, you know, walking songlines across over in Western Australia, I was carving a, I was carving a boomerang while I was doing that. And so all those stories went in there. Yeah.
1: Let me just jump in and ask about that because I didn't earlier. That that was something I was curious about too. What is a song line? So you were saying while you were walking a song line, what's a song line?
0: It's a bit like I mentioned before that, you know, it's all that body of law with all those stories. The the stories are maps. So the story is a map, but but more so, the story is a map that's just taken from a land. So the land is a map uh-huh. in a way. So all of the the travel routes taken by the hero ancestors and creator ancestors are kind of etched into the landscape, and you can see them in the geology of the place and. And what kind of plants are growing there, and where the water's running under the ground, and everything else. But they're also lines of energy, you know? A bit like that idea of ley lines. Yeah, a bit like that as well. So, song lines and, and their stories, and their maps,
1: and their energetic and they're everything, really. Interesting. Okay, so I interrupted because I was, I was so curious. So, you say you were walking the song line, carving the boomerang. Yeah,
0: yeah, with with the elders and listening to that story. and
1: yeah, and I was,
0: uh, uh, a lot of that was a seven sisters story, which is that Pleiades constellation, which is called the seven sisters all over the world. Isn't that weird? You know, that means we are all from a common origin and a common story. So that idea of comes back, I guess, lives back to that idea of what you can recover. Yeah, and I, yeah, I had a shooting star from, like I was carrying around one of those tektites. It was a shooting star from, from the place where those seven sisters came to earth. Yeah and i was carrying that around there and i i just yeah i ended up carving and putting it into the boomerang there and then all the stories came out from that and then all that knowledge ended up on there it was um, yeah it was an intricate one that one so yeah i guess they all just happened like that were all things i needed so like when i was looking at uh doing the spirits spirit and spirits you know it's like making a shield just with that idea of protecting myself <laughs> you know of you know having a shield, yeah. But it's, it's also about what wood was available and where I've been traveling and what I've been given permissions to, to cut from different, different places, different country. Because you can't just walk into somebody's land and cut a branch. You know, you've got to spend a lot of time uh, with the elders there and build up that relationship and get permissions to cut those things there.
1: Yeah. When did you first know that you were going to write the book? And how did the decision to carve those objects play in? Was that something you were already doing? And then you thought, oh, I'm going to do my best to translate this into the English language in the form of a book? Or did the idea come first for the book and then you did that? Like, how did all that play out? I just, I wasn't going to write a book at all. Yeah, it was just a a
0: publisher read a piece that I did in a newspaper and contacted me and yeah, talked me into over a long period of time, talked me into writing a book. Yeah. So it was something that was requested. And I was kind of like, nah. But then in the end, he offered me a five grand advance against the royalties. And I really, really
1: needed five grand at that time. So that's why I wrote the book. I think people have written books for worse reasons. So (laughs) there's no, that's, that's great. How did you do it? Did you write longhand? Did you write with a computer? Did you, do you have a writing routine? Did you write every day? How did, as a practical matter, getting the book to come together, how did you do that?
0: It was really easy because I can touch type. I learned to touch type in school on a typewriter. (laughs) And because I can touch type, I can, I can write pretty much as fast as I think. Yeah, so it just, it took nearly two years to carve all the objects and to put all that knowledge into it so it was already there it was already written and all i had to do was pick up the object and just download it and just type it out so actually writing the book only took two weeks like that just because it wasn't really writing a book it was just typing typing
1: the book if
0: that makes any sense so it just got written as fast as i could type
1: man i know there was that other question but now that i've oh it was about i love what you say about not being very important, but being part of something important and and the reason I think this comes up for me in the writing part is about the fact that you talk about that you, it's not your place to speak for the knowledge, but you can speak from the knowledge. So in your sharing, you're not necessarily trying to represent anyone or be someone important, but will you talk will you talk a little bit about how because it, and I just I know I'm using a lot of words, but I think that we all feel. Everyone who feels they have something they want to share in whatever form, if they want to start their own podcast or they want to write their own book, that they feel somehow they shouldn't, right? How, and, and that was what I was picking up in what you were saying, but how did you, I want to say, how did you move past that or how did you move forward? How did you do it anyway?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a part of it is, as, as you say, knowing you're not special. And this is something that every human is supposed to learn in their first rites of passage at around the age of 14 or 15, you know, you go through that ordeal. We're back to ordeals again. <laughs> it's kind of like a big punishment. You know, you go through those the, those rites of passage to come into manhood or womanhood, and the main lesson you learn is that you're not that fucking special, you know. And it's I know that sounds devastating, but it's intensely liberating, you know, and I guess it's about freedom in that way, freedom and obligation. But here's the thing, creativity, art, it's another one of those things that's been given a name. We don't have a word for art, you know what I mean, or craft. That they're not words because it's supposed to just be in your life. Look, we're all supposed to be singing, and making music, and making art, and making stories. You know, this is something that we do as human beings. Every single, every single one of us. There isn't some elevated person who's bloody, you know, the creative genius over there. It's something that's been stolen from us. So we don't have music just in our lives anymore. It has to be something recorded. And it's been made into a product that one of these elevated, pretty creative individuals is allowed to do, you know, and that they've got to be famous or something. It's just terrible. They get paid for it. Oh, it's a terrible thing. You know, people don't say, people don't say, what are you reading? They say, who are you reading? You know, it's like if you do anything creative, it's like you either get elevated up to be this special person or you get told don't give up your day job. You know, anytime you might dare to fucking sing when you're walking down the hallway or down the street, you know, you're going to hear that. Don't give up your day job. Well, sorry, I'm I'm not trying to make a career out of singing here. I just want to sing because I'm a human being and that's what we do. No, you're not allowed to sing. You've got to listen to Britney Spears or whatever. That's Adele. Adele is allowed to sing. Oh, don't write. No, no, that's the, you know tyson's allowed to write <laughs> it's just <laughs> no nah, you know you're not special like, just relax do your things make your make your objects make your art sing your songs write your books get them out there it's and fuck this marketplace you know it's not real none of it's real even the idea of i mean there's an arts they call it the arts industry there's a clue it's an industry There's another thing that doesn't exist. That's two words for things that don't exist and shouldn't exist. They were made up, you know, same as if I named the top half of your body brilliant and the bottom half Brian, you know, that would be a wrong naming. It would be like a curse. Nature and society, you know, yeah, art is just part of your life. That's your creative process. It's just your living process. And then that comes back to the process of listening to the land that we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, that's really all the questions that I have prepared. Is there anything else related to the creative process or the act of writing that feels like it might be useful to someone listening?
0: Yeah. Be someone listening. Okay. And there's the relationship advice that I needed to give.
1: (laughs) That's beautiful. Well, I thought before we wrapped, I knew and I was really inspired by what you've said about connecting to the land and, and really listening. And this morning I went upstairs and before we interviewed and I took a photograph of where I am and I thought, if you, with your permission, I'd like to show you. That's going to be amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Tyson, this this has been a real privilege to connect with you. I know you've stayed up very late to be with me here and, and Dallin and everybody listening, but maybe what we'll end with it we could end now of course is it's just what what final thoughts what advice what encouragement what instruction what anything would you leave me and anybody listening with ah
0: just what i think is the best thing in the book the best thing and the, the only 100 percent true thing is never wrestle a pig because you both get covered in shit, and the pig likes it <laughs> Yeah, that's just the best advice I could, it's the best advice I've ever been given. And yeah, it's the best advice I could ever give anyone, I think.
1: All right. Never wrestle a pig. That might be the title for this episode. I think it's got to be sand talk, but never wrestle a pig is maybe the secondary.
0: That's it. No, (laughs) make it never wrestle a pig. that will be great.
1: Awesome. (laughs) I'm also reminded of what you say about pigs when they return to the wild. Oh, yeah, that's a good way to end too. Will you talk about that? But then,
0: you know, in a way we are the pigs. And we're in our feedlots, fat and happy. Yeah, but look at what happens to those those ones who escape. You know, it doesn't take them long, but they mutate really quickly. You know, they they sprout all that black hair and big tusks, and and they get smarter because a domesticated animal is an animal that's been you know confined and it's been made stupid. It can't problem solve. It can't do anything. You know, but you you look at those wild pigs. They're very very smart if you've ever hunted them. You know, and um. Wouldn't it be great to sort of regain that kind of transitional feral intelligence? Because they're still just feral pigs. And no doubt they'll return to what they were before that even. when they are really wild. Um, But imagine, it's almost like a superpower. You imagine what it would be like to to free yourself from domestication and and to, to become like that wild pig. If you compare that feedlot pig with the wild pig and you think, wow, that could be me.
1: Superpowers. Okay. Well, thank you. And by the way, next time, I'll say next time because I have this belief that secretly Utah is the center of the universe. <laughs> Everyone and everything comes through here sometime. But if you ever find yourself or the next time you find yourself here, please let me know. You're always a guest in our home and I'm so grateful to have a new friend in Australia. <laughs> Same. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people